What's up, guys? It's Justin Khan, and you are listening to my podcast, The Quest, where I dive into the interesting stories of people around me. My guest today is Carol Robin. Carol is the founder of Leaders in Tech, a nonprofit organization that helps train technology company founders and executives. And for nearly 20 years, Carol taught the most popular class at Stanford Business School called Interpersonal Dynamics, aka Touchy Feely. Based on our work in that class, she built a very special program at Leaders in Tech, and I went through this program myself last year. It really changed how I thought about emotions and bringing my whole emotional self to work. I can honestly say it was one of the top learning experiences in my life, and I'm really excited to dig into it with Carol on this podcast. Carol's also the author of the forthcoming book, Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues. And Carol is one of the most amazing teachers I have had. So very excited to have this conversation. And here's Carol. Carol, it's so good to see you and have you here. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Likewise, I'm thrilled. I want to cover everything, uh, all of Lit and my experience with it and T-Groups, tell people about all of that. But I want to start off with how you came to this work and how you became an educator, because that was a hard pivot from your, you know, you were a business executive beforehand. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got started here? Uh, so yes, it's it's a long, circuitous story. I've had, I don't know, six careers, depending on how we count. And only my latest has been as an educator, but it's been the longest. So I've been an educator for probably 20 years. And uh when I really think about it, I think I was always an educator. I just showed up in different settings. Um, I think one of the things that frankly made me a, a good leader and a good manager way back when, when I was running a sales and marketing organization in industrial automation, was that I loved helping others reach their potential. But how I ended up at Stanford, uh, which was kind of the beginning of my more formal education career, is that um, so when my husband and I got married, we made a deal that we were both at the same point in our careers. We were both on the rise, junior executives in the Valley, and we wanted to have kids and we wanted to be very involved in the raising of our kids. So we made a deal that what we would do is we would take turns being home, being the primary caregiver and the primary home uh, maker. We made the deal before we got married, but then after we got married and decided it was time to have a baby, uh, then we decided that I would be the first person to kind of pause the career and stay home. And then I would stay home until our youngest child was well established in elementary school. And then we would switch places and he would come home and take uh, the kids you know, the rest of the way. And then once they went off to college, we'd figure out what we were each going to do after that. Uh, and we called that our life plan. So that was, you got the hard part. Cause that was the, you, now that I have a kid, I'm like the first couple of years, that that's, that's the hardest part. Yeah. Wait till you have them wait till they get older. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> in different ways. So it made the most sense from a perfectly practical point of view that I stay home first. I mean, I was the one with the breasts. So that made the most sense. It, it, however, turned out to be a stroke of genius that neither of us had any idea we were having, which is that when they're really little, 
you have to manage their lives. And I'm really good at that. And when they get older and they become teenagers, then you have to learn how to counsel and be a coach, a facilitator, a consultant. You become their consultant. And when we made the swap, it became really obvious that the way Andy parented was much better suited for them as teenagers or or sort of early teen and through Ah. teens. Now, we made the switch later than we'd originally anticipated, which is part of the answer to your story about how did I get into education. I had always thought when we made the deal that I would go back to sales and marketing and industrial automation. It's what I had done before. I had been successful. I I had a lot of contacts and networks. I figured that's what I do. But what happened was when I was home with them and they were little and they got old enough that I could do something other than just be with them 24-7 but wasn't yet ready to switch entirely, I realized I didn't want to go back to industrial automation, sales, and marketing. It was sort of like I'd been there and done that, and I'd done the corporate thing, and it just was was holding less and less interest for me. And I got involved in local nonprofit community organizations. I ended up on the board of a couple of organizations, including Leadership Palo Alto, And I got really intrigued with this whole idea of leadership development. And a fellow who I was on the board with, Tim Stanton from the Stanford School, uh, he was at Haas, which was uh, one of the schools at Stanford. I I said to him one day, we were were talking, and we developed this really cool program for Leadership Palo Alto. And I said, you know, I really like this stuff. I think I want to do this when it's my turn to support us. And he said, well, this is actually called organization development. It's a whole field. I was like, really? No kidding. (laughs) And uh, then I decided, well, I don't know. If I'm going to go back and do this, maybe I should get a little more education. I was halfway through a master's in chemistry when I decided that I didn't want to be a chemist. So, you know, go all the way back there. I didn't have enough uh, credits to graduate, but I had more than enough credits for bachelor's in chemistry at the time because I was in a four-year bachelor master's program. And so I went to the business school at Northwestern and said, hey, can I just take some business classes to kind of make up the rest of the credits that I need? So I never got an MBA. I never got anything beyond a master's in chemistry. I mean, a bachelor's in chemistry, but I went to work. And so long story short, I decided, well, maybe I need to go back and get a master's in organization development. If I'm going to be messing around with people's lives, I should know a little bit more about what I'm doing. So then I got into this master's program. I totally fell in love with being back at school and decided a master's wasn't going to be enough, and I got a PhD. All of that was while the kids were still little, and I was still the primary caregiver at home. By then, they were in school. I was in school. worked out pretty well. Andy had become a big-time executive in the Valley, and he had a lot of options that hadn't quite vested, and I hadn't finished my PhD And so we delayed when we made the swap. We didn't make the swap when our youngest was in elementary school. We made the swap when our youngest was in sixth grade. By the way, in the meantime, when we made the deal, we had frozen our standard of living way back when, when we got married. Actually, when I I quit my job, my original job, and we froze our standard of living so that as he made more and more money, we could bank the differential between what it cost us to live and how much he made so that when I got back in, I wouldn't have to immediately make what he was already making. You know, two business people get together, make a life plan like this. We're pretty pragmatic. So 
we made the swap when our youngest was in sixth grade and our oldest was in eighth grade. And a lot of very interesting things happened at the time, which was, first of all, nobody in Andy's business network could believe we were doing this. In fact, I remember getting a call from you know, the CEO of the, of the very large Silicon Valley company he worked for at the time saying, okay, Carol, so what's the real story here? Is he, is he dying of cancer? Uh, did he have a nervous breakdown? Like nobody could believe he was stepping out at the pinnacle of his career, making the kind of money he was making to come home and stay home with the kids. And at the same time, everybody kept saying to me, are you sure you want to go back to work? And it turned out that the swap was harder on me than on him because he couldn't wait to get out of what, what he was in. He was so done. And I hadn't ever yeah. really stopped to think about what it was going to like for him to take over my job. Because my job was taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. And, and I had a way of doing my job. I didn't go replace him as a senior VP of marketing at a huge Silicon Valley company, but he replaced me. So I had some pretty specific ideas about how I wanted the job done. And so those were some pretty challenging years for us. But the long and the short of it is that by then I had gotten my PhD and I had gone to work as a partner in a consulting firm. First, I started out with my own smaller consulting gig, and then I joined a bigger firm as a partner. And by then, I was, you know, he quit on a Friday, and on, on Monday, I got on a plane and went to Australia because I had joined this new consulting firm that was worldwide. And as you might imagine, that was a, you know, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't make a swap like that if you were replacing an an executive assistant. Can you imagine? Never even occurred to us that we should have some overlap. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> it was pretty interesting. So then I had my, my era uh, as a consultant and I traveled all over the world. And that was a lot of fun. It was very gratifying. And then when our youngest child was in high school, she got sick. She's, she's fine now and she's great. But she got sick and I just couldn't be on the other side of the planet. It didn't matter that Andy was home, totally in charge, totally capable of doing everything that needed to be done. I would call home and, you know, she'd be crying and I'd be like, oh my God, I feel like the worst mother on the planet. At the time, one of the members of my dissertation committee had encouraged me to go meet a fellow named David Bradford at Stanford, who's the co-author of the book that, that we've written that's about to come out. David was in charge of a course called Touchy Feely, which lots of people have heard about. And it's actually called Interpersonal Dynamics. And he'd been around the GSB for quite a while. But the course had gotten quite popular. They were teaching four sections at the time. And they needed another person to teach. And so Charlie, my mentor at, at my PhD program, introduced me to David and said, you guys should talk. So I went to see David, and long story short, David said, I think you'd be really good at teaching this stuff. And so I started by teaching one quarter of touchy-feely a year at Stanford, kind of on a lark. And then once our daughter got sick and I didn't want to be traveling so much, I decided to take a leave from my consulting firm so that I could be home a little bit more. And at the same time, Stanford had decided they wanted me to do a lot more teaching. So 
originally I thought I was just taking a leave from my consulting firm. I was going to teach full time for a couple of years till everything stabilized. Then I'd go back to teaching very part time. Well, then I totally fell in love with my students and I decided to have my partners buy me out and I became a full time teacher at Stanford. Uh, and I, during the years I was there, we went from four sections of touchy feely to 12 sections of touchy feely. And, you know, a lot of people thought I invented touchy feely because I became known as the queen of touchy feely, but I did not invent it. It was there when no. I got there and I stand on the shoulders of some real greats, uh, including David Bradford. What was, what I brought was that I was the first person who was teaching it that came from business from the business world. And so I was able to connect the dots better for the students with regard to why, why does this matter? And how does this make you a better leader? And how does this make you a, you know, a more well-rounded human being? And so I think that was part of the, the shift in the popularity of the course was as students started being able to see how they were going to use it. It was always transformative. Students always, I mean, way before me, they would come out and say, oh my God, where's this been all my life? But what happened was that it got a lot more momentum as they started recognizing what they were going to be able to do with it. And so that's, that's how I ended up in, in academia. By the way, ironically, at my very first dissertation committee meeting, I sat them down and I said, just to be clear, I want you all to know I am not getting a PhD because I ever intend to teach. So don't make me do all that bullshit that academics care about because I am not going to be an academic. I am too pragmatic for that. So then for 20 years, I got a little note addressed to me, Carol Robin, care of Graduate School of Business, Stanford University, from the chair of my committee that would always start with, quote, let me be perfectly clear. I am never going to teach. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up doing something that you never thought you would for 20 years. Yep. Um, but first, I, I want to I ask like, for the audience, what is touchy-feely? Okay. So, uh, so first of all, touchy-feely is the informal, affectionate name that the students call this course called Interpersonal Dynamics. And it's a quarter-long course. Uh, and, you know, you, you had Jason Tan on your podcast, and you've been talking about T-groups. So the main modality of learning in this course is called T-groups. The idea is that you don't learn about how to become more interpersonally competent by having me lecture or reading a book or even having discussions about it, you learn to be more interpersonally effective by interacting with other people in real time and having them let you know what it is that you do that is influential, that is distancing, that draws you clo them closer to you, that has them trust you more, trust you less, uh, makes them feel safer, makes them feel less safe, has them wanting to have more relationship with you or less. And the idea is that if you create an environment that feels incredibly artificial, 12 people sitting around a circle with a couple of facilitators and no structure and no agenda, people are like, what? But when, you, when we create that, what we do is we create a deliberate vacuum. We pull out everything that normally exists when groups of people interact, an agenda, a formal leader, goals, 
The only goal is to learn about how to be more interpersonally effective. That's the only goal. So everybody looks at each other for a while. Everybody's kind of quiet. And then finally somebody says, well, what are we supposed to do? And they all turn to the facilitator with an expectation that somebody in a differentiated leadership role will tell them what to do. And then the facilitator might say, what do you want to do? And then somebody has a reaction to that. Well, aren't you the leader? Aren't you supposed to tell us? Well, I think you might learn more if I don't tell you. Well, why are you holding out on us? Not pretty soon, there is an interpersonal exchange occurring. Or another thing that might happen in that vacuum is that one member of the group says, okay, well, why don't we all go around and introduce ourselves? So everybody starts introducing themselves. By the time they get to the sixth person, the sixth person says, I don't even remember what the first person said, and I'm kind of bored. Things that people would actually probably not say, but we've established a norm around speaking what's going on for you right here, right now. What's going on for you intrapersonally? I'm feeling really awkward. I'm feeling really embarrassed. I'm feeling bored. And what is going on for you interpersonally? Wow, I'm really appreciating the way Justin was willing to take a risk and suggest something. So out of this vacuum springs this laboratory. The T in T group stands for training, not therapy. And the idea is to co-create a laboratory where we can all learn about how to be more interpersonally effective by just engaging with each other. And what happens is, as in any relationship, and now it's a co-created relationship with a bunch of other people, people, you know, dip their toe in the water and they might take a few chances and a few risks. And then when those go well, then they're willing to go a little deeper. And when those go well, they go a little deeper. One of the premises of the course, and something we talk a lot about in the book, is what we call the 15% rule. So behaving the way you always behave and doing what you always do and staying in your comfort zone will not result in learning. However, stepping way outside your comfort zone and doing something you can't ever imagine doing or saying is too terrifying and you'll just freeze. But there's this zone in the middle, which is where we learn. And the laboratory is meant to create conditions where you can experiment with stepping outside your comfort zone a little bit at a time, i.e. 15%, so that you learn. So maybe I have never been willing to be vulnerable and disclose that I feel kind of insecure about whether or not I even really belong here. Well, I've got a mental model and a set of tapes that say if I say that, people will find me less credible and weak. But now I've got an opportunity to test that assumption. So I might say, I might be willing to disclose that to this group. Maybe not on the first day, maybe not in the first week, but maybe by week four. And then it turns out that people say, wow, Carol, I find you a lot easier to relate to after you said that. I thought, I thought nothing bothered you. I thought everything was water off a duck's back. So I learned something. And then I get to apply that learning to the way I show up and interact with others in the group. Uh, I think maybe one of my favorite examples of this, it didn't happen in a tea group, but it so informed my work. It was an early, it was an early harbinger of things to come, which is 
at the time, and I think I may have shared this in the group you were in, but at the time that this happened, I had risen up the ranks. I was running a $50 million region. I had a bunch of guys that worked for me because at the time I still hadn't been able to convince management to let me hire another woman because they kept saying, but if you hire a woman, then we'll have a woman working for a woman. (laughs) And I would say, oh yeah, because we don't have any (laughs) men working for any men. Oh my God. It was like, yeah. I mean, let me tell you, I'm old, but the dinosaurs were not roaming the earth. Um, Anyway, but this was maybe early 80s. And I had my my team at this offsite, and I had this really cool idea, and I was really getting excited about it. By the way, I had learned there was no place in work for emotions or feelings. I had been well socialized in a very male environment, so I was usually a hard ass, and it served me pretty well early in my career. But we're at this offsite. We've all been working really hard, and I'm really excited about this thing. And I'm trying to get them enthusiastic about it, and I get crickets. And I'm like, come on, you guys. Can't you see how cool this could be? Crickets. And I, you know, I get a, a little more agitated. And then one of my guys looks at me and he says, wait a minute. Is that water in the corner of your eye? Are you going to cry? But then he says, are you human after all? And then I burst out crying. <laughs> How did that make you feel? It was a watershed moment in my life, Justin. I looked at him. I said, you don't think I'm fucking human? I don't think there's anything more important for us to talk about than that. And I tore up our agenda for the offsite. And I said, we're going to spend the rest of our time here talking about who we each are what matters to us, why it matters to us, and what that means for what we want to do with each other and for each other. And that's when we became a team. And to this day, I believe those guys would follow me anywhere. However, if I had burst out crying (laughs) two years into my job when I was a sales engineer, way down the pecking order, I'm not sure it would have served me. Right. So, so why was that such an inf- uh, an important moment in the development of your team? Because I think that, you know, oftentimes people are afraid to bring their vulnerability to work. Absolutely. It was the reason it was such an important moment and in retrospect led me to everything I ended up doing at Stanford and why I sit here today and why I wrote this book is that I held this really strong mental model that you just talked about, which is if I show vulnerability people will see me as weak. And I had the additional mental model, not unfounded, that as a woman, it was especially important for nobody to see me as weak. And I gotten very good at it, but in the meantime, nobody saw me as human. And after a while, that wasn't serving me very well. And, you know, frankly, I remembered thinking, I'm leaving half of myself in the parking lot. Every day when I come to work, I'm leaving half of myself in the parking lot. And it turns out I was leaving the the most important half of myself, the half of myself that people could connect to, which, by the way, is why the book that we've just written is called Connect. Because somehow, somewhere along the way, I'd lost sight of the fact that people do business with people. They don't do business with ideas or machines or money or plans. They actually do business with people. So unless they can figure out how to connect to someone else, I think they're limited in how far they're going to get 
in their success. They're limited in their success. And that was when I said that part of what I think created this reputation that I had as the queen of, of touchy-feely once I got to the GSB is that I had stories like that to share and real experiences. It's like how to bring it back into the business world. Precisely. And so what are the things that people get from and take away from touchy-feely or from a tea group? Is it, well, I guess my own experience was that I, I felt uh, like I was able to test some of those mental models that I had about how I was presenting to people or, you know, and that was really important. Then I, I felt like I learned, you know, in my um, going through this program, I, I learned a lot of skills, actually, a lot of skills about you know, how do I talk about my emotions or bring my emotions to work. Are you driving people towards, even though it's free form, are, are people being kind of driven by the facilitators towards a specific end state? Well, let me, let me, let me back up a little bit. So we, just because T-group is the key pedagogical modality we use for learning, it doesn't mean that there's no reading and no class time and no concepts. I mean, it is a course at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. So there's research that backs it up. There are concepts that are key. There are competencies that, that you get to practice in these groups. Even in your experience in Lit, you learned about the power of self-disclosure, for example. Uh, you learned about what results in feedback being effective and not effective. And also, how, does feed, how can feedback build relationship instead of weaken relationship? You learned about what happens when there are power differentials in a group and how that affects people's behavior, including your own. You learned about how to connect across differences. And boy, if there's ever been a time when the world needed these skills and competencies, I don't think there's ever, ever been a more important. It's always been important. But my God, I mean, people have just completely lost the capacity to learn how to, how to be curious, how to talk to each other in ways that actually build relationships how to connect. And now then you add the pandemic, you add everything that 2020 brought. <laughs> Politically, racial divide, and then the pandemic. And boy, I don't think we've ever been more disconnected. And I don't think it's ever been more important for us to regain some of the value that we give to investing in connecting with others and learning how to do it, how to do it well. Right. That's perfect. I want to talk a little bit about my own experience with it because it was so impactful for me. Uh, I felt, and I think this was pretty standard. It seemed like every, you know, many people in the in both my two group experience, but then other people in, in the previous programs or, or future programs also had a really impactful experience. And when I came back, I was so impacted. You know, I shared it with lots of people. I recommended a ton of people. My brother uh, Dan went through the program as well, uh, so I'm very thankful for that. But for the, for the audience, you know, kind of listening, for me, it was this, you know, kind of window into all these skills that I had not even known existed or behaviors that I had been, unconscious behaviors that I'd been doing my whole life that I hadn't really realized. And so it was a very eye-opening experience to kind of, I guess, lower the waterline, as you guys say, to, to see more of what was going on or yep. like maybe increase my level of consciousness about my own behavior. And... Um, some of the big takeaways for me were, you know, 
one was just the skill set of being able to talk about my emotional experience and like having practice of I feel angry right now or I feel irritated or I feel sad and being able to name that as opposed to, you know, previously my coping mechanism for feeling difficult emotions was to run away from them. So the, the ability to just sit with it and to talk about it, uh, which is its own form of catharsis was really big for me. And then another big takeaway, which, which was both during the, the weekend, but that we, we did it, but also came afterwards in, in the peer groups that we did was you know, one big one thing for me was to, to really understand that I had this unconscious behavior needing to put myself in positions of power relative to other people in interpersonal situations. You know, it was like a learned behavior from when I was younger, but I would you know bring up, oh, I've been successful in these ways. I'd like figure out secret ways to work it into the conversation, you know, kind of like, oh, I've founded this big company or I'm so I'm into meditation and I'm so on this spiritual path or whatever, anything I could use, like anything interesting or successful or whatever facts to kind of put myself in that position. And, and it was so funny realizing it and having other people just point it out in very blunt terms. Like, you know, I can tell like you're doing this behavior and I just want to put that out there <laughs> and to be called out on it and realize it was such an eye opening experience for me. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of people report their experience as, and the, all the emails that we get from alums and calls and, you know, what they say is, this course helped me learn how to be a better human being. It, it helped me learn how to deepen my friendships. Uh, it, I've had many emails from people saying, this, this saved my marriage 10 years later which is pretty unusual for a course that you take in a business school. In addition to, <laughs> wow, you know, I think I owe all, all of my promotions and my professional career to the fact that I actually learned that people do business with people. So the reason that it's had so much impact and it's so well-known and a lot of people use words like life-changing and transformational is that, as you just pointed out, once you learn how to learn about yourself and how to learn about what's going on between you and someone else, then you continue to have that capacity forever. It sounds abstract, but learning how to learn is learning how to learn about interpersonal dynamics is the goal. But unless you've been through it, it sounds a little like, what? What the heck does that even mean? Yeah, it's interesting because when I first heard about it, it was from Jason and he said, oh, you should do this course. And it was the most impactful thing I've done this last year. And I was like, okay, I'll do it just based on your recommendation. I'm someone who d dives in, I'll try anything once. But I didn't really get it. It was, you know, he was saying, oh, you just kind of sit in a circle with strangers for what's like 30 something hours of time, right? In, over this long weekend. And I was like, oh, what, then what happens? I think it's very hard to explain how that is a transformational process, you know, and, and it's one of those things you have to, you have to do it. Exactly. Justin, it's like trying to explain skiing and how exhilarating it is to somebody who has never seen snow, has never seen skis. It's like, 
well, there's this cold stuff that's slippery and you put the, these things on and then you slide. By the way, they don't even know what sliding is. So how do you, you know, how do you explain it? So it's, it's one of those things that you just have to do. And another thing that I want to make sure I underscore is that the power of the course also lies in what happens when these students and participants discover what happens when they allow themselves to be more fully known. Most of the time, especially in the Valley, we uh, spin images and we hide behind facades and we're always crushing it. And there is something profound that happens when somebody decides to take the chance of dropping the facade and allowing someone else to really see them. And talk about a major shift. It's like, boy, I thought that if you really saw me, you'd think I was an imposter and you'd think less of me. And it turns out you like me a whole lot more and would be more likely to follow me. Imagine that. So that's been my own experience for sure is that as I have become more vulnerable with the people around me, but also publicly in talks or on social media or whatever, you know, the response has been much more right? People are attracted to that authenticity and vulnerability. And so my question is, how does somebody actually go about if they want to do a T group, not everyone's in, in Stanford GSB. And then you started some program leaders in tech to kind of bring this training uh, program to technologies, founders and, and executives. But, you know, that's a very small group of people. How do, how does someone go and have this experience if they aren't in that set of people. So there are a number of ways in which people can have a T-group experience. Uh, and you're now speaking to how we, my co-author David and I got talked into writing this book. So for years, we had been approached about writing a book about touchy-feely. And we kept saying, you're not going to learn about this in a book. No way. We, we're not writing a book. You actually have to go do it, as we've been talking about. And the very, very smart editor at Random House who approached us said, what you just said. So let's see. The only people who get to learn these competencies and skills and have the benefit of this life-changing experience are the people who are privileged enough to get into the Stanford Business School or lucky and privileged enough to get into your or some of these other programs, how can that, how are you okay with that? And that's how he got us. So David and I sat down and looked at each other and said, uh, maybe it's time for us to really, really think about whether there's a way to bring this to a much larger group of people than who we can reach through individual T groups. And four years later, <laughs> That's how long we were at it. Um, so I've, I've said that writing a book was like being pregnant for three and a half years, in labor for six months, and now we have a baby and we have no idea what to do with it. <laughs> um, but uh, what we landed on that I'm, I'm really excited about and I'm almost a little bit nervous and afraid to be excited by because... I hope it turns out to be true. Uh, I think so, but I won't know until the book is out there. Is we landed on a way 
to bring the lessons of touchy-feely to a reader by, uh, so it's not an academic book. It's a book that conveys all of the lessons through five storylines. Two colleagues, a man and a woman at work, a father and a daughter, two buddies, two women that have been friends since they were in college, uh, a married couple. And so the concepts are brought to light in the stories of these, of these relationships, which are an amalgamation of relationships that we've known or been in. They're no, no one, it's no one particular person. And then I think what's even the coup de grace is that at the end of each chapter, after you've read, you know, why self-disclosure is so powerful and you see what happened when these two people decided to take a bit more risk and share more with each other, then we have a section called deepen your learning. And then we ask you, the reader. So if you had been uh, Elena, what do you think you would have done? when, you know, Sanjay said, blah, blah. Now, stop and think about what is there for you to learn about that when you think about, oh, I, put, I would have probably done X or Y. So what we're essentially doing is we're guiding through them through the process of self-reflection that participants in groups, you know, can't help but have happen because they're living it. And then we say, okay, now pick a person in your life that you'd actually like to feel closer to and have a deeper relationship with. How, how is what you've learned about disclosure, you know, going to inform what you want to do next? Now go do it. Now stop and think about what you learned from the doing. And, and in fact, what we ask the reader at the very beginning is read a chapter, go do what we tell you to do reread the chapter, and then go on to the next chapter. Now, we don't know whether people will be willing to invest that, but essentially what we're doing is we're delivering touchy-feely one chapter at a time. And in fact, that's what chapter two is called. Chapter two is called a world-class course, one chapter at a time. And so it's five chapters that kind of cover all of the different skill sets no, no, no. It's 16. It's 16 chapters. <laughs> um, okay. Because um, you follow the five relationships, but you also follow the five relationships over the arc of a relationship. They're at different stages of their relationship in different parts of the book. And so there are different, different skills and competencies required at different steps, at different stages, and how to use them. It, you know, by the way, there's, there's a big section on conflict and how conflict can actually strengthen and deepen a relationship rather than running away from it. You learn a whole bunch about each other. You know, the, the, the essence of the book, I mean, the book is called Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues. But, you know, the book is in two parts. And, and with the metaphor we use is imagine climbing uh, a mount, you know, David was a big climber as a, as a young man, he used to climb Mount Washington. And there was a, there was a tough climb to what they called the upper meadow. And then there was the, an even tougher climb to the summit. So what we, the first part, part one is just how to get to the upper meadow. How do you get to a place where your relationships are robust and functional and they feel solid and good? 
and most people don't even know how to get to the upper meadow. And then part two is, so there might be a few that you actually want to make the even steeper, even, even trickier climb all the way to exceptional. And here's what, here's what that's going to take. And, you know, we define exceptional as, as a relationship where you can both be vulnerable and fully yourselves, just for starters, where you, uh, you could be honest with each other and nobody will use whatever you said against you, uh, where you can both be and remain committed to each other's growth and learning uh, and development. And, and the idea is that you can have some of that with some people, but when you have all of those with a person, then you're on to something that we call exceptional. And it takes a lot of work. And, it, and we're not saying every relationship in your life should be exceptional. So there's some basic skill sets to get to the upper meadow, to get exactly. to like a kind of baseline good relationships. And then there, you have a, a guide to getting to building exceptional relationships. That's correct. And if you think about your own T-group experience, I bet you could identify some of the stuff that takes to get to the upper meadow and what it might take to get all the way to the summit. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking about it right now. And I think, you know, getting to the upper meadow, it's probably showing vulnerability and talking about, you know, your emotional state as opposed to just, you know, the facts and circumstances of what's going on, right? It's like going deeper in the, in the conversation. And probably there's some component of just spending time with the person too. Or I think there's a, there, there could be a little fallacy in the spending time because it's what you do with the time you're spending, yeah. right? How much are you really letting each other in? How real are you being with each other? If you and I are very real with each other for half an hour, that will advance our relationship much farther than if we spend three days together on a camping trip and never talk about what's really going on for us. Yeah, that's true. There's this element of this, you know, from the T group, my T group experience where some of those people I'm, you know, very good friends. I joined the board of one of their companies and we only spent an hour to, or sorry, one weekend together. There, there was an example of forging some incredible relationships off of like a very, relatively small amount of time. So what's, what's an ex, what are the hallmarks of building an exceptional relationship or what are the ways that people build an exceptional relationship? Well, when you go back to, you need a combination of all these things in order for it to be exceptional. So you need to deal with conflict productively. And by the way, that means you have to take the risk of sometimes saying things without knowing what's, what's actually going to happen. Like if I tell you that something that you've been doing is really bugging me, initially, that's going to create friction for us. And you might feel crappy. I have to be willing and invested enough in our relationship and committed enough to your growth and our relationship to tell you. And to be very clear that I'm telling you because I think you doing X or Y is harming us. Now, there's a version of that that you need to get to the meadow. But there's an even, an, an even, more, even more courage needed to get to the summit. Precisely because once you get to the meadow, 
sometimes you think, eh, it's pretty nice here. The sun is warm. There's nice flowers in the meadow. It's pretty here. You know, the hike to the summit is very uncertain. Uh, it starts out looking all clear and then clouds come over the summit. Then you have to stop and then you don't know if you're going to make it to the top. And you think, why did we ever leave the meadow? But the fact is that it, it isn't necessarily a whole new set of competencies and skills, but it is using them in even more profound ways to build connection. Particularly your investment in another person's growth and learning, which is why exceptional relationships tend to be a little harder to achieve at work. Because work is often very competitive. <laughs> so I've, I have so many questions of, about this. Like, you know, there's a risk, right, uh, Ian, when you make a bid to be vulnerable or to have increased levels of self disclosure with someone uh, and you don't know how they're going to react. Oftentimes we have this mental model that we're, it's, we're scared to do it because we think they'll react poorly, we'll be rejected. And in the T-group setting where you have a real-time example, oftentimes you know, there's one person who maybe says something or is a little bit braver and, and models the behavior and then other people see it. And then that's, there's a cultural norms that shift in a certain direction from what maybe like happened in your, what happens in your daily life. But like with a book, how do you, you can't really, it's hard, it must be hard for people. The readers will have to take that risk themselves, right? Like, how are you thinking about encouraging people to take that risk in their lives? Well, we're hoping that if they read the book the way we're recommending they read it, which is a chapter at a time and then go do something with what you've learned, Remember I talked earlier about how the way you learn is by taking incremental steps outside your comfort zone. And so the deepen your learning sections of each chapter build in terms of how much risk you're going to take. So we're not asking you to take the biggest risk ah. after chapter one. We're going to ask you to, you know, go out and just try something small with somebody and then see what it is that you learned. And then by the time you come back to the concept of disclosure later, now maybe you'll take a bigger risk. And we actually ask a reader to pick three or four relationships for the course of the book. In fact, we're, what we're hoping is that, you know, two or three people will buy the book together and read it, you know, create their own little pod. And at some point when we have time, we'll probably create some kind of you know, something on our website to help people learn how to, how to use it more fully. But I think even if they just do what the book recommends, well, first of all, they'll be way ahead of the game than doing nothing. And there's still never going to be a substitute, a full substitute for actually being in a group, in a tea group with 12 strangers for 40 hours. I mean, there's, there's a quality of what you're going to learn. The, the way in which the mirror is just in your face so many hours and the ahas are like, oh my God, oh my God. I never thought, oh my God. You know, that, I think it's, uh, it's going to unfold for a reader in a less intense way. But I don't think, or at least my hope is, that 
it will still have a lot of impact in their life, that they will actually emerge from it with a sense of how to build far more satisfying, meaningful, fulfilling relationships. Not to mention the fact that if they are leaders, they're going to learn a lot about how to create environments where people can actually have more functional relationships and connect across differences and learn how to talk to each other in ways that actually are generative and productive. How do you, when you're connecting across differences, I mean, that's something that you know, we talked about and is a really difficult thing for people to do today. Uh, I think that you know, everybody seems to be on the internet getting triggered by the people who don't believe what they believe yep. and then spewing uh, like vitriol. triggering things, vitriol <laughs> back to the, to the other, other, other people. Like how, what are, what are the tool sets for people to keep themselves, you know, open to connecting with other people across, across differences? I, I feel like if you suggested that idea even to people who are you know, currently in their triggered states online, they'd say like, I don't even want to connect with those people. Like, why should I even, you know, they believe something so toxic. I don't want to connect with them. I think, I think that you're, you're talking about something that's really challenging and important, which is this work, whether it's doing a tea group, taking touchy feely, reading this book requires a learner's mindset. If you don't want to learn, then, then this really isn't for you. We were initially very concerned about people seeing this seven easy steps to being more interpersonally competent. They don't exist. And there is no such thing as instant intimacy. And there is no such thing as instant connecting across a huge difference. So you have to start with a desire to learn something. When I encounter somebody who believes something that I could not imagine to be more egregious, the first thing I do is I get curious. I think, wow, I wonder how you came to that conclusion. I wonder how your life is served by believing in that as strongly as you do. I wonder what I'm missing in not believing that. I wonder if I come across to others the way you're coming across to be. I wonder if there's something that we could do so that we could actually both see each other as human beings who perhaps have a bunch of pretty core needs that are not that different. Maybe we both want to be loved. Maybe we both really care about the future of our children. Maybe we both feel like we've gotten the wrong end of the stick. And so could we start with feelings, by the way? Maybe we both feel afraid. Maybe we both feel sad. Maybe we both feel abandoned. Can we start with, wow, what if the two of us could come up with a way for neither one of us to feel that way? Maybe not your way, maybe not my way. You know, see, that's that's the problem. That's the problem with discourse today. It's very, very divisive. You either believe this or you believe this. I often, you know, I have a, an executive coaching practice, which 
by the way, is closed. I, don't, I can't take on any more clients, um, <laughs> especially right now. But, but I often tell my clients, imagine a triangle where at this end of the triangle is me and at this end of the triangle is you along the base. And at the top is a goal that we share. Not feeling so crappy could be a really great goal. Not feeling taken advantage of could be a really great goal. Now, you believe the way to get there is this way. I believe the way to get there is this way. Unless we allow the, for the possibility that neither of those ways is the only way, unless we allow for the possibility that there is some interim way between the base and the top, we will never have a conversation that creates relationship, much less a solution. Yeah. And I, I love that whole thought process because uh, curiosity and cultivating that curiosity, curious mindset when you come across something that may be triggering has been a huge growth path for me. You know, I, I used to be a very reactive person. I probably still am in, in many ways a very reactive person, but yep. I have been able to cultivate a short circuit, right, of like getting curious about something that normally maybe I'd be offended by. Like someone says something to me on a text message that my first reaction is like, oh, this person's wrong or they're attacking me or whatever. You know, I've been able to start saying, oh, I wonder how, why they're saying that. What, what's the motivation behind that question? What is their incentive? What about them makes them ask that question? And am I reading it even in the right way or, you know, starting to ask questions about it? How do people cultivate curiosity? Right. And here is where I think mindfulness is such an important element of being interpersonally effective. You know, Joe Greenstein used to say that we should have called the course interpersonal mindfulness because the more in touch you are with what is going on for you and how you're reacting, the more you can manage those reactions long enough to be curious about what's going on for the other person. So, you know, that, that famous Viktor Frankl quote, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies our choice, right? So a lot, a lot of, inter of effective interpersonal dynamics and a lot of building relationships is about paying attention, noticing, which means you have to pay attention, and then being deliberate with the choices that you make in the interactions that you have. Which a lot of people, that's another thing you learn in T-Group. Oh, I didn't even realize I did that, right? You didn't even realize there was a choice, much less that you'd made one. Right. Most of the time we are going through life being triggered by one thing or another without even being conscious of it. You know, something is where we run out of gas or something and then we're just like, fuck. This is, you know, I'm pissed off and you don't even think about like, oh, I have, I'm having an angry moment when I am experiencing anger in my body. You're just angry and you're swept along until you get to the next moment. You know, maybe that wears off and then something happens and you feel happy about it. Something, another thing happens and you feel sad about it. Most of us are very unconscious about our experience. So, you know, one thing that's worked really well for me has been to build up my meditation practice to become more conscious of my experience, whatever it is emotional or phys physical or, or anything else, how do people develop that space between stimulus and response? This is where something like 
the lessons of the the course or T group or the book really help. You ask other people to help you. If you're not noticing and you're and you've got a relationship with somebody who's invested in you, they'll say, so Justin, I don't know what's going on for you right now, but your voice just went up and you got a little curt and you know, what's going on? What are you feeling right now? And then if you didn't notice you were angry, you get to say, oh, you know what? I'm pissed. So one of the beauties of developing relationships like we're talking about is you don't, all the burden of being on top of what's going on for you is not entirely on you all the time. That's so funny you said that because uh, after my T-group experience, I actually immediately, which is really stupid of me, but I had planned an executive team retreat for my company. <laughs> Even though we told you not to do that. <laughs> I didn't read, you know, I'm not very good at reading emails, yeah. <laughs> and, and, like following directions. And so I immediately the next day went to this team retreat and, you know, during the, and we was facilitated, I had someone doing the, um, a co- my coach, Matt Mushari was there and so we were doing feedback, like live feedback with me. And one of, I was like, oh, I can do this feedback live. I'm totally fine with it. You know, I've just been through this big experience, like where I got a lot of feedback, so I'm going to be fine with it. And I remember he was reading out the feedback and then somebody, you know, one of my executive team was saying, oh, you know, I think this might be, you know, it was maybe the, well, about the way I treated people at the company. And it was negative feedback, but right? it was like Justin treats people like, yeah. you know, he just uses them. By the way, then, I never use the word negative challenging yes. difficult not negative all feedback is data never negative that's Go right ahead. it was it was difficult <laughs> it was difficult feedback about me being you know using people and not caring about them and i felt it was very unfair i felt outraged and but i didn't know it you know i, I was like I, I can i can accept this i'm i'm just accepting this feedback and my coach actually called me out at that moment he was like stop it's not safe to give Justin feedback right now. He's very angry. And I was like, no, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. You know, you could see (laughs) in my face, my jaws tense, my body's tense, my amygdala's firing. And I'm, I was very upset because I felt that I was being treated unfairly. And, you know, at that moment, it was interesting because that moment really changed the course of our retreat because then he was like, okay, we need to take a break and you need to go outside and run or to do some jumping jacks or something to work out your anger. So like, cause you're very upset right now and you're not in a place where you can get feedback and other people are afraid of you. And of course I was like, that's stupid. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's, I'm not angry. I'm not that stupid. <laughs> I, I don't like, it's silly. And then he took off running actually down the driveway of his hotel. And he was like, you can't catch me motherfucker. And I'm like, what? Like he's, you know, 15 years older than me at least. And so I'm like, no way. And I sprint after him. And then halfway down the driveway, he starts yelling at the top of his lungs, like, ah, and he's like, Justin, you got to just yell it out. And so I'm running after him yelling. And then by the end of it, you know, I'd worked out this (laughs) energy and been able to release my, you know, come my current tense emotional state and go back into them and actually hear feedback. But the interesting thing was it was a short circuit, like him being there and being able to give me feedback in real time and feeling 
comfortable with that and say, being able to say to someone's face, like, no, you're a- angry and you're not able to control yourself right now. That was a big moment that changed the trajectory of that, well, that event. So I, I love the story and I have a couple concerns with it. Okay. You know, the classic, you're angry and you can't control yourself right well, now. I don't is, think he, that might've been a miss. I think that's a misquote. That's probably not what he said. Probably not what he said. Um, he probably said something that made you pause enough to recognize you were something, you were feeling something. And it was big enough that you stopped in your tracks. Whatever he said just made you stop. Yeah, I think he said something that was like, you seem very angry and right. we should take a break. Yes. Like, and then I was like, no, you know, I'm not angry and we don't need to take a break. And he was like, you know, I strongly suggest that we take a break. I think that's something along those lines. Right. Now, if he had wanted to put himself in that, as, as we talk about in T Group, he could have said, I'm feeling nervous about what's going on here. I'm afraid that you're not fully in touch with some anger you may be feeling. And I don't know what will happen if we don't take a break. As a facilitator, he may not have had a need to do that. And I'm not saying he did. But I am saying that the more one puts oneself in whatever they're saying, whether it's advice or counsel or questions, the stronger the relationship will get. So, you know, Justin, I'm worried about you right now. If I was on the receiving of the on end of this, I would be incredibly pissed. How are you doing with it? might have been a very different way to go. That might be a way that one of your direct reports might more easily go. Right. Um, to Matt's credit, he probably did say something like that because he's very in touch with the language yeah. of conscious leadership and you know being in touch with his emotions and just talk, naming his own emotional experience and not assuming about other people. No, no, that's good. No, I and I, I, but I think it's a great way to remember that what you hear is not necessarily what someone else has said. <laughs> yes. Uh, which, which is another big lesson in touchy feely, right? There's the whole, you know, you encode something based on your life experience and uh, and how you see the world, and then I decode it through my own set of filters, and then until I say, so what I heard you say is. You think I'm angry. I don't know what you really said, right? Yeah. Um, cool. So when, when, is, when is the book going to come out? Uh, February 9th uh, is, will be in bookstores, obviously a little bit before that, but February 9th is the date that books will be, start to be delivered to people who've pre-ordered them. And uh, it's the day that you'll be able to go to a store and buy it to the extent that anybody will be going to stores at that point. And we'll have a website up in another few weeks for pre-orders. And also we're inviting, uh, well, I'll speak for both of us. Uh, We're inviting people that we know, CEOs, founders, managers who want to have like a fireside chat with one of us uh, and wants to, you know, do a a bulk pre-order of a certain number of books. We're, Super interested in in doing that. You know, I don't care that much 
about how many books are sold because I don't really care about how much money I make here. But what I really care about is how many people read and use this book because I honestly think that it could make such a huge difference. It would move the needle on so many broken conversations and broken relationships. Do you know that there was a time when Republicans and Democrats had the same cafeteria? They actually all ate (laughs) the same cafeteria. Do you know that they do not do that anymore? They can't even sit. They used to go to each other's homes. They used to have friendships. Their families used to get together. They, they might have had big ideological differences, but they had relationships. And, uh, and that's just one example of the, the extent to which the foundation of a relationship as the building block for problem solving has been eroded. And, you know, you heard me tell the story about starfish throwers, but, you know, I've, I've never, I've never given a course or ended a, you know, a, a, a year at the, all the years I was at the GSB and gave a last lecture. I've always told the story of a, of the starfish thrower because I learned about it when I was doing my PhD. I don't know who wrote this. It has been a guiding principle for I don't know, 30 years now for me, which is, it's the story of a burned out executive who goes away for a weekend and is walking the beach, you know, one Saturday morning, wee hours of the morning, sees a distant figure that looks like it's dancing and is intrigued. So she walks towards this figure. And then as she does, she notices it's an old man. And what he's doing is he's leaning down and picking up a starfish and throwing it in the water. And he's been doing, and she, and she's been doing that so rhythmically. I mean, the old man has been doing that so rhythmically that it looked like he was dancing from far away. So then she stops and she looks up and down the beach, and there are thousands and thousands of starfish on the beach. And and she says to him, "Excuse me, what are you doing?" And he says, "What does it look like I'm doing?" The tide came up, deposited all these starfish on the beach. The sun is coming up; they're all going to fry. I'm throwing them back in the water. And she says, what are you, nuts? There are tens of thousands of, maybe hundreds of thousands of starfish on this beach. What difference could you possibly make? And he leans down and he picks up a starfish and he throws it in the water. And he says, I made a difference to that one, didn't I? And the the day I read that story, (laughs) I knew I was put on the planet to be a starfish thrower. But then as my career unfolded, It became clearer and clearer to me that what I wanted to do was build an army of starfish throwers. And so, you know, the the addition to the story that I added was that she then goes and joins him. And then more people join them. And then pretty soon, you have an army of starfish throwers. And my my greatest hope is that, that the book will help throw hundreds of thousands of starfish, maybe millions of starfish back in the water. That's a beautiful story. I love that story. Um, So where can people find you online? I'll put the book into the show notes so people can pre-order the book, but where else can they find you online? Well, I've got a LinkedIn contact. So by the way, this is where my age is really going to (laughs) show. 
Follow me on LinkedIn. Yeah, follow me on LinkedIn and that's going to be it. I have a Facebook account that I have not looked at since my son insisted on setting it up for me. I do not have a Twitter account. I do not have, um, what are other ways that, that people communicate these days? Um, Instagram. You yeah. Have Instagram. Yeah. I have Instagram. I never look at it. <laughs> uh, so if you want to contact me, uh, contact me on LinkedIn, but probably the best thing to do is, con- is, go, to, is go to our connectandrelate.com. Gotcha. All right. Are there any other things that we didn't cover that you'd want to talk about? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about this tomorrow at my lit talk, but I will I will say that you know, you know me and I really like to live what I teach. And possibly the hardest thing about putting this book out there is the possibility that it just won't won't go anywhere. That it'll that it'll just sort of fizzle that you know, uh, a few thousand fans will will buy it, and that'll be that. And I'm really wrestling with how to both hold this big. And by the way, what a classic entrepreneurial dilemma! I'm I'm struggling with how to hold this vision for what it could do, and how much impact it could have in the world. With it somehow just never went anywhere. So I don't know if I should get all excited, pour every, every erg of energy I have into, you know, trying to make it a success. I'm trying to figure out how to keep my ego out of it. And so I do think that I'm just living, living what so many of us who decide we want to go do something in the world, you know, live. And it would feel, I would feel incomplete in not sharing that with you. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's super vulnerable. What comes up for me actually is the question, what would your life be like if it doesn't go anywhere? I mean, right now, I don't, I have no idea. Probably not that different. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, I'm, I'm 66 years old. I don't know how many more plays I've got. If, if I was here when I was 40, I'd be like, okay, well, I'll figure something out and then I'll find some other way to bring this to the world in the way that I want it to be brought to the world uh, or in the way that I want the world to see it. But, you know, I've got a little bit of an existential dilemma going here because uh, I don't feel like I've got infinite time. I don't know how many more plays I've got left. And that makes it even. That makes me feel even more vulnerable. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I understand that. I mean, it, I feel that it, it seems like there's a weight that you really want this to be out there in the world. And it's, it's important to you. And I get that. I mean, for what it's worth, you know, it changed my life. So there's at least one starfish and I really appreciate yep. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and thank you for that because, you know, I do, I, I get hundreds of emails and calls from former students and participants all the time from over several decades. And so that's a lovely reminder that I have, in fact, you know, I had, and, and I know that they're all out there 
you know, becoming starfish throwers. And so sometimes it's hard for me to measure the impact uh, of what I might have done. And, and it may be that if the book doesn't succeed, I'll find a way to make peace with that. Well, I'm pretty confident it's going to be a success. I'm definitely going to buy it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I want to thank, thanks for sharing that and thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you. Really fun conversation. And also it served as almost, almost like a reminder for me of like how to, of some of the, the thing, the touchy feely skills that I may have been a little rusty on. So I need a much needed. Yeah. You know, let me just say one more thing. I can't tell you how many students over the years begged us to write a book so that even though they'd taken the course, they could go back and be reminded of its, of the lessons of the course. And so even if it helps like it did for you to even talk about it, for you to just, you know, to the extent that you're a little rusty, go back and double down on using the lessons, that'll be good too. Beautiful. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. Really, really fun. All right, guys, that was my conversation with Carol. The things I learned from her really changed my relationships at work, and I encourage you all to pre-order her book, Connect. I'll link it in the podcast description. As always, bang out that five-star rating on iTunes, and you can follow me at Justin Khan on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, everywhere else. Love you all, and I will see you next week.